Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Foley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 21st, 2023. All right, so I was going to start with one I saw from uh, BlackBerry blog. Uh, sometimes they have some pretty interesting reports. And this one is the Cuba ransomware deploys a new tools, basically targeting critical infrastructure sectors in the U.S. and IT integrator in Latin America. So, um, you know, it's always interesting when we look at ransomware groups in general. Um, and this was interesting kind of how it started off because... They believe that even though this is kind of a Cuba-based ransomware threat group, they think that has a lot of Russian ties because they probably have members um, participating um, in this group's activity that is associated with Cuba. And they get those ties because of some of the Russian, um, when they're, when they're, I guess one of their pages online went down, it was uh, you know had Russian language on the backside, um, throwing errors, as well as um, Russian translations to um, Latin American language and things seems like it was kind of broken up as if you were translating from Russia. That was kind of the analysis they did. Uh, so uh, that was interesting, but it's something that we kind of see, right, when it comes to ransomware groups. They either share techniques or share personnel. Uh, so that's something to take note of. Uh, and in this, you know, it, what's interesting about, you don't really hear about Cuba a lot, right, as far as, you know, the cyber involvement. But I feel like when you look at groups that aren't mentioned a lot, you can also see that in their techniques. So there's a lot of Metasploit and Cobalt Strike um, being utilized, which is, you know, was incredibly popular, you know, 10 years ago. You still see it today, but it seems like that was kind of one of the ways they kind of um, lived off things. Another example is they used, a, a, uh, I think it's Ping for All um, or Ping All, which basically allows you to enumerate things, which was like an old executable uh, that was used back in like the hamster days. Um, that they saw, um, and they and they were taking advantage of um, older exploits for uh, execute or sorry escalation. Um, so uh, you know they're obviously using very well tested exploits um, that are kind of built into some of the tool sets they're using. Uh, and the other thing that that was interesting too when you talk about, I want to say maturity, is they seem to get right in um, to the networks that they're compromising. So it would mean like one of two things. It's either like a password reuse type scenario, right? Or um, access brokers. So something that we don't talk about a lot, but there's there are actors out there or um, cyber crimeware groups that just specialize in getting access to different networks and things. And they're called initial access brokers where they didn't sell that access to people that may be interested in those targets. Um, so they think that that could be utilized as well, but they're basically looking for administrator level login stuff via remote desktop was the most common 
um, method that they got in and there weren't fail login attempts around the the access that's why that that theory um that's why they have that theory um but you look at a lot of the the behaviors you know it, it lines up with kind of the default run of metasploit and cobalt strike as far as the randomly named pipes the way they look the way some of the cobalt and or the metasploit implants look um so you know that's something they kind of take note of and then something that you know when you see uh, you know this kind of stood out to me when you see a lot of command slash c the cmdxe command prompt slash c pointing to bat files a lot i feel like that's a, a common way where someone who's got that kind of remote access executing a bunch of things and especially when it's a bunch of bat files being executed that way it's kind of suspicious when you look at that behavior together there was a lot of that activity and they did use uh leverage a lot of small smaller powershell scripts to kind of break up the different components of their attack um but yeah i mean it's kind of just a, a really interesting read as far as looking at how people gain capabilities from um op like getting operators with experience elsewhere um, as well as kind of seeing uh, how younger groups start to mature, because I think they're in a position where they're effective, but they're not as mature as they could be. So, you know, it's, it's interesting to see um, when you're kind of rating capabilities, looking at this campaign as a whole. So I was I was very surprised about the um, the different capabilities they had as well. So reading about or reading the uh, Intel or the report, you know, they mentioned the multiple tools they were using. So they had um, the tools like Bug Hatch, uh, they used Metasploit, Wedge Cut, Burn Cigar. So all these different tools to achieve pretty much the same things that you could do um, using Living Off the Land binaries. Now, I think Burnt Cigar sounded more like, uh, um, I would say it sounded like a rootkit. I can't guarantee that it was one. Because it was, um, I think it was terminating uh, processes on a kernel level. And um, it, it was, it was, it worked with the uh, device IO control function uh, to exploit the undocumented IO control uh, node. So it, it kind I could be wrong, but it kind of sounded like a um, rootkit to me. But then on the other hand, all the things that, um they were using then they had another living off land binary technique for so I, it, it seems like they kind of came prepared that we're gonna try and use uh our main tools that we have to make things easier especially because they saw defensive agent right they were trying to turn off um or they were trying to turn off endpoint protection tools so if they could do that first and then drop their tried and true tools to work properly, then, you know, then their life might be a little easier. And if they tried defense evasion and it didn't work, maybe then that's where they started leveraging the living off the land binaries, which I found pretty interesting. Um, you know, some threat actors that we've read about and some threat actors we've researched, they seem to only like living off the land binaries because they seem to blend in with the traffic more. Whereas this crew kind of seems to bring the whole package and see how it works throughout. Um, I hope I'm not giving them too much credit. That's what it kind of uh, sounded like to me. I know you talked yeah, about the... Yeah, but I feel like... 
But go ahead. I was just saying, you comment, they kind of bring all their tools. I feel like this is the example where IOCs became so popular in the past because these tools, I don't feel like are written by them. I feel like they're kind of acquired and utilized by them. So it becomes a, if you have the right IOCs for some of these things, you'll see a lot of their tool sets. That's why a lot of actors moved away from these kind of, this type of approach, I should say. But yeah, go ahead. No, then you mentioned the, um, next which they're, they're using. One was what zero log on, um, mm -hmm. which was CV 2020. Um, so it tells you how old that is. And then the, what the VM backup service, the CV 2023, So pretty recent, um, what was discovered in late March. When was this? Yeah. Um, yeah. sorry, March 10th. And it focused on a specific um, back service. So it kind of tells me that it was targeting almost, or maybe they, you know, maybe they discovered it while they were in the net environment. I don't know, but it seemed like the exploits they were using uh, appeared to be planned as well. So either they did their reconnaissance really well, um, they discovered, or or they just knew who they were going to attack uh, very well. Now I do see. Um, in, in the report, they ran a net stat and a task list, and they did find um, the VM backup service.exe rank. So that could have been a pivot during the attack. But still, you know, the fact that they knew right away or that they had that exploit pretty much in their toolkit ready to go, um, it just speaks on the ran or on the um, pre preparedness of these guys. Yeah, but don't you think they could have used just look it up the Metasploit when they made that discovery? Like, what could what can work with high probability? And that just comes yeah, up when they use it. Well, or, you know, use source like SploitDD. Um, yeah. You know, when the idea is to try and look for that. Um, but, yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it could have just been a simple Google. Um, but it just seems like a, um, I don't know how to say this properly. It seemed well planned, but while still leveraging the tools, and they also still showed a bunch of behaviors. Um, of course, the behaviors that we like to focus on, um, you know, there's that nice graph at the bottom. But so, yeah, um, that's a good graph. Oh, and I think that Cuba ransomware is just such a big red flag that's uh, almost comical. Like, <laughs> we don't hear about Cuba as a, uh, no, I'm not saying that they aren't. They might be operating under the radar very well. Um, but to come out as the cube, the Cuba ransomware, um, kind of seems too far flung, I guess. Yeah. So what's interesting there is, I mean, you kind of bring up an interesting point just from, a like, let's say you want to be able to target certain regions of the world and not look like your motivations are from your real original country. <laughs> so you kind of make it look like you're actually coming from a country that already has poor ties. I don't know. Like, but, uh, yeah, it was interesting. So I, I found, yeah, when I found this, I thought it was interesting to see Cuba pop up and then kind of see some of the ties to, you know, older techniques or older tradecraft with using some of the tools and then, but still being successful. I mean, that's something to be said there too, right? Like they're using a lot of things that have been seen before. Um, and able to leverage them with a lot of success. So it just kind of shows that people aren't um, staying current on the right things, or maybe their uh, operations aren't as mature to deal with 
the things that we've been dealing with for, you know, at least a few years. So what do you got? So for the first one, I have um, volume three of Analyst One's Ransomware Diaries. And this one is titled Lockfit's Secrets. Now, this is a huge read. <laughs> it's very detailed. There's a lot of information on it. And really, but I'm just going to give out some like quick highlights because honestly, I don't have enough time here or we don't really have enough time here to read the whole thing and provide all the, I mean, there's so much unique intelligence here that I, it would be a disservice to try and say what was a highlight, almost. <laughs> but I'm going to try. Um, now, it's great because this is volume three. So it's, you know, a story that's built on and uh, the author, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, John DiMaggio uh, from Analyst One does a really, really, really good job at explaining things and um, telling a story like a true storyteller. Um, but some of the highlights are uh, there was some internal fighting with Lockbit. Um, they were trying to, or they had issues publishing and leaking victim data because of their uh, aged infrastructure. Then there was this big break where they took a break and then their the job was to try and update the infrastructure to help us out. Um, I'm sure you've seen the lockbit posts um, where they're claiming some of the victims. Um, you know, they like to do the um, the extortion method. Uh, and um, sorry, and then they have a lot of internal fighting. They are losing people um, constantly. It, it, it kind of seems like it's all just like following apart. Um, there was a bit of uh, discovery of Lockbit for Apple OS X. Granted, the researchers that found it, now looking at it, it takes a lot to massage that victim's computer um, or their Mac to actually make it run and work. Um, and then Lockbit, again, was trying to steal ransomware from its rival ransomware groups um, so that it could improve its processes um, and everything. Now... The, I, I don't want to say that's that's the end of the story because it's not. Um, but while I was reading through this, the biggest thing that came to my mind, what really, really stood out, was we always talk about um, the human aspect, the threat hunting. And I know we say this all the time, right? Threat hunting is focused on the ass, the, the human, while, you know, alerts and detections focus on the IOCs. This... And, uh, and I'm sure we've heard of, or I'm sure everyone has heard a story about where they've done investigations into cybercrime rings to come to find out that they were working in a brick and mortar building that had a receptionist to greet them, that had HR, they had meetings, you know, they looked and operated like a legitimate business. They just had a different goal in mind. So we know that that human aspect is included as well. But what this report and this intel or this this story really tells yeah it really screams to me is the whole aspect of what happens when things go bad or when things aren't working properly how do the humans act now these are criminals so they're probably not the best people in the world so the fact that they were trying to trick other ransomware uh, groups into giving them access to their code so that they can 
look at what they're doing and then them, you know the other groups not trusting them uh, just cracks me up because it's like they're trying to it's like Lockbit is trying to social engineer and trick other ransomware groups who are also criminals right like they're all probably on high guard all the time um and just the conversations the screenshots everything are not comical but it's very interesting to see how they operate from a human standpoint um and i think the funniest i'll say the thing i find funniest about this intel report is because it's volume three you know uh, john dimaggio has covered lockbit before now he's stuck his neck out you know it's it's like a big deal he went back to check out Lockbit, and they have they changed their avatar to his face. So, which cracked me you know, once again cracks me up because the human is either egotistical or they're out of, or they're calling him out that they know who they are, they know what he looks like. Maybe they're trying to send a warning. I don't know, but the fact that this group, who is it seems like struggling to stay together, struggling to get operations. Um, complete and to do what they're what they try to do best it, it seems like the good times have gone and that they may be bleeding too many people out and you know it just seems like it's falling apart not that it is uh, i can't say whether or not it will i'm sure they'll find young talent somewhere but it seems like we're really seeing the ransomware group being human um which could be a good thing uh yeah floppy went away um but still um very good read very long read um a lot of really good intel it shows a level of intel and um details that normally we're not used to um simply because this wasn't just researching a piece of malware or a strain of ransomware it was looking into a um, but like I said, very good read. Take some time, but uh, I'd highly recommend it. Um, what, what did you think, or what were your uh, highlights? Yeah, I think you kind of hit um, some of what um, I was going to definitely call out is the human aspect, right? I really like how it really kind of opens up that there's people behind this that behave like people, essentially. And, you know, when you're looking at some of the history, when you're looking at the the full diary, you can see where there's members that go in and out of these groups that were formerly with TrickBot, um, the Conti ransomware group. And we, it's kind of a theme from the last conversation we had where it seems like actors in the criminal space uh, seem to kind of fall in with new groups as they emerge and kind of change groups, you know, throughout their lifetime. Because I feel like if you're a professional or consider yourself a professional at this, you're going to stay within the same realm um, and just kind of change jobs, essentially, right? But that's what makes, I think, threat hunting in the criminal space, in the crimeware space, um, highly effective because you are constantly seeing these emerging threats uh, that you typically have to handle and that usually hit headlines. But a lot of times they're made up from some of the old talent. And in doing so with that, you also have a lot of, like, uh, tradecraft 
as far as how these people operate and what they utilize from tool sets and their kind of behaviors in an environment that make hunting new crimeware groups easier than if they were just a brand new group made up of people that you've never seen operating before. Um, obviously, people grow mature just like defenders grow mature with technologies and capabilities. Um, but if if you already are kind of used to navigating some of these old groups well, um, well with hunting, uh, it makes it much easier as new crimeware groups emerge to utilize some of the same hunts with very little tweaks. Um, so that's kind of what stood out to me as far as the theme as I was kind of going through all this was you know, kind of tying that humanistic component, um, the old trade crafts staying uh, consistent and alive and making threat hunting um, a really good solution for a lot of these um, associated crimeware groups. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and it is very funny to see this level of human within them almost <laughs> like the action because you normally whenever you hear about um you hear about victims like you you always hear of the crime the cyber crime get away with it you know they're happy yeah but then you know this is the human aspect this is the things aren't always rainbow and sunshine right all right well enough about Wathbit. what is next yeah so the um the next one I was going to throw up there is a Security Week article, uh, and it just kind of caught my eye because I think these uh, events are always kind of uh, important to note because there's always cyber activity around them every single time. And this, the article is titled, Suspected North Korean Hackers Target South Korea U.S. Drills. So, you know, if anyone's aware, you know, annually or in some sort of cadence, there's always kind of military drills that are performed um with alliances between different countries and things. And there always seems to be uh, an uptick of cyber activity, either trying to gather information based on, you know, what can possibly be learned from others drilling, um, but also uh, to try to possibly kind of create some havoc as well. Um, so there's kind of two motivations there. And so we always talk about ge geopolitical things uh, in this podcast as far as driving the motivation as far as behind some of us, you know, cyber activity. Um, and so this kind of brought that up as well. And then I kind of thought about how would I approach this from a, a threat hunter's perspective if I, when I see something like this that I might be worried about. Um, and, you know, if, if I needed to kind of step up my game knowing that I needed to deal with this type of problem or something associated with it, Obviously, I'd be looking at well, what some of the you know North Korean type of behaviors or tactics they've used in the past um, as just quick gimmies, you know, for things I could potentially be looking for. Obviously, uh, things that have happened more recently would be probably uh, more reliable. Uh, but also looking for, hey, if if this attack isn't something that's been ongoing, right? Like this is causes like a spur of the moment, like hey, they're going to start engaging and doing things. Then I started looking for how would I dissect MITRE as far as where do I focus my attention. Um, and it would be more on the how are things being executed and persisting, right? Uh, because my assumptions going into this is, hey, let's look for any of the, the type of North Korean behaviors that I can look for a longer period of time to see if maybe I can see those behaviors repeating and they've been sitting there waiting for this exercise. Or if those don't 
turn out anything. Let's just look for some generic common ways to execute persistent environments so that when they land, I've got a good understanding of what's normal. And then if something outside of that comes out, I might be seeing, you know, the first elements of their initial attacks to basically, um, based on this whole engagement. Uh, and I think that's something that a lot of threat hunters, um, at least I, I sometimes have struggled in the past, right? Is, okay, where do I start? Or how do I think about the problem? And it's more about looking at the problem from what it is you're actually trying to defend against or solve and not just as a threat hunter. Um, I thought that this was like an easy way to kind of walk through that like I just did, right? You know, you've got this attack, a specific threat, you know, now you got to focus on how they behave and then you have some timeline of when you expect them to attack, um, which give you a lot of insight for uh, what to prioritize. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my two cents on that. So what are your thoughts? You actually nailed it on us. That's pretty much yeah. all. Um, the, the, the great thing that is um, Kim Suki has been, or Kim, Kim Suki has been um, active for a while, right? Um, even the report from uh, Security Week they included links to what one, two, three, four other um, attacks that they were known. Right. Um, and then you referenced the miter attack matrix, right? Which is great because I always point threat hunters uh, or whoever's willing to listen really to the miter attack matrix because it is so rich and full of information. Now, you said you'd go check out, you know, different t uh, TTPs or tactics, techniques, procedures. Um, if you go to the miter attack, matrix and you look at focus on the groups and you find kimsuki they actually provide you with the what they call the attack navigator layers so it's another um like it's open or it's a i believe you can download it for free from the github the miter attack github um and the navigator is a, another graphical uh interface that you can look at the um ttps or the different uh tactics techniques and sub-techniques that different groups use. So they this is a great place to start that hunt. So if anything that is really highlighted in blue, um, so I guess this helps remove the guessing game, right? You found your group that you're looking for, you open up the, the navigator, and you take a look at the highlighted techniques and sub-techniques. You can use these as your starting point, like for example, um, looking at uh, where we got um, initial access, we're looking at you know they've used sphere phishing attachments and they've used sphere phishing links. So why would you focus on other initial access techniques that aren't used, right? It gives you a w quick, easy way to prioritize um, where you're going to look at. And like you said, you know maybe you want to look at initial access first. Or you could look for persistence, how do they use that, um, et cetera. It's a really good resource, um, and I'll actually include it in the links to Sufi. Um, but it's a really good resource, too, um, for whatever you're looking at an Intel report that may not have all this technical details, but they have historic, or they're mentioning a, um, or sorry, they're mentioning a group that has been active in the past this gives you a great resource to say, what have they done in the past? What can I start looking for? 
Because even if they are, maybe they do change some tactics, techniques, or procedures that they use throughout the ongoing attack today. They probably will still stick to like their wheelhouse. Because just like we mentioned with Lockbit, they're human. They're going to do what they find comfortable. They're going to do what works. Uh, and they're going to keep doing those things because it makes sense to. Why would you try something new that's not tested or that may cause alarms instead of using the things that you know have worked in the past? Right. So um, something that you mentioned is a, is a great point. You know, we talked about the criminals and they kind of have their habits, let's say. When you start moving more to like a nation state, you start having SOPs and that stands for standard operating procedures. Oh, absolutely. Which, right. Cool. So that there is like a playbook that these offensive groups have to help them address because one thing you have in those types of situations is specialization. And if you do your section, maybe it's persistence or whatever, and you happen to have a group that like then picks up for that left op. They kind of need to understand what you did to get there so they don't mess anything up and that all, the attack flow works from start to finish. So that's why these these kind of SOPs get developed. And they kind of are like extensible habits that are kind of programmed into people. Um, so it's a really good point that you kind of bring that out, like, you know, how they operate. Yeah, no. It, it, and you're absolutely especially when it comes to different teams. Um, and, you know, they might see... Or as the as the attack is you know stretched out, it might not be taking forever. It might just be a different team taking care of. It. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's it was really good. Uh, and 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 the fact that it happened with these um um with the uh, ongoing um exercises, not surprising, right? Um, because I'm sure North Korea sees it as a um, like in a front or a you know a flex. Yeah, it's like a threat, threatening. Right. Uh, right. So why not? Why not show them what they're made up of at the same time? Um, or what can they learn so they can position better? Right. I mean, I think there's a lot of information gathering when you around these exercises for sure too. So oh, absolutely, because you might get a hold of some uh, unclass or some classified intel that you may not have known earlier. Right. Cool. So what do you got next? So next up is uh, from an article from Group IB. And they is titled, Hunting Rituals Number One, Threat Hunting for DLL Siloing. Now this is great. Um, well, I know a lot of, I say a lot of things are great. This really is. Um, <laughs> thinking about how we talk about these um, TTPs, the tactics, techniques, and sub-techniques, so the Meyer-Jack framework. And I know we've mentioned um, DLL sideloading before. Well, this article discusses how to actually threat hunt for it, which is very rare. Um, in an Intel report, normally it's just laying out the facts of what happened. So it mentions that DLL sideloading was abused, etc. But this one is specifically designed to get people thinking from the threat hunter's perspective. Um, now, one thing that I really appreciate that they called out was that they started from a hypothesis and then moved to event analysis. It wasn't a alert or a detection that was triggered. Right. They basically treated this like 
it was the um, scientific method where they said, I think this is happening in our environment. And then how would I find that? And what would it look like? Now, they do um, share some queries. Now, I think they're specific to the tool that they were using. Yeah, I think but it's their tool. Still, yeah. But you can still uh, extract the values that they used and apply it to the tool that um, that you may be using as well. Um, and I know we mentioned uh, in the past DLLs executing from a from a file path or file directory um, that is matched with an executable, and that's actually what was seen there. It was in the program data. It was a um, I think it was a non-legitimate version of Acrobat um, or Adobe Acrobat. So the executable file was acrobat.exe in the program data file. And then when it was executed, the DLL was from the same um, location. And then they mentioned how um, scheduled task was used um, to continue the execution and possibly add persistence. So it was nice. It was refreshing to see that another vendor validated what we're talking about all the time. Um, how hypothesis and Intel, those are your driving forces, not, not, um, you know, indicator of compromise and not, uh, alerts or detections, but then it was nice of them to step through the process of trying to figure out, um, what other techniques were used to really leverage or what were used after the DLL sideloading was accomplished. It's a great article. Um, it, and it's refreshing to see something like this. Yeah, I really like this article. One, it kind of got my brain working on some other things with what they were doing for like ideas that I have vetted, but I'll kind of talk through them here. Um, first off, it, I mean, it's so easy to understand from their query language and their tool what it is they're actually looking for. Granted, they may collect some telemetry data that might not be in tools that you know, others might use, um, and that's okay but it's good to understand that, you know, kind of their approach from that. But the one thing that you can definitely learn is kind of the past they were targeting as far as where they've seen DLL siloing occur uh, when people want to move their executables and their malicious DLLs um, onto the system before executing them. So that's like a good piece of information. I think you can, if you are trying to develop things or already have DLL siloing, something that may help you reduce some noise potentially or, and or give you some more targeted uh, areas if you want to get really specific. Um, but when they were talking about, you know, they mentioned like payload image file sign, trusted status. Like, is it a trusted signature or not? And, and I get the trusted signature or not. I mean, that's kind of controlled based on what cert authorities you trust on your system. So Windows kind of manages its own, um, things go in and out. Uh, and then you can add your own trusted certificate certificates in there as well as for CAs. That's cool and all, but then I started thinking, well, I know everyone in software development is not good at signing their software, right? So sometimes you get executables that are not signed, but a lot of the major developers do sign their software. And in that note, uh, my thought was, well, I wonder how often they sign their DLLs too, because you know, with DLL sideloading, you usually have legitimate executable and an illegitimate DLL. And you figure out how to get that executable loaded because it's vulnerable to DLL sideloading. Well, if you would expect 
if an, a software developer is good at signing their things, that they would sign both the DLL and the executable with the same cert. Or if not the same cert, the cert issued with their name in it, basically to be able to compare and match. So then I was thinking, well, if that were true, and I haven't vetted this, this is kind of how like hypothesis start, right? Where you get this idea like, hey, this would make sense as long as the world functions this way, right? And where people follow oh, really good practices. <laughs> and then take that a step further and say, well, gosh, if I see an image load of a DLL that doesn't um, match, that's from the same directory, let's say that we had to start there because that's what the they're kind of taking advantage of is the search order hijacking potentially. Um, it's in the same directory as the executable but does not have the same signature either by, you know, same corporation associated or even like the same cert, depending on how specific you want to get, that might be a sign of DLL sideloading, right? Because obviously the malicious DLL will not have that, but a legitimate one would. Um, if everything's signed correctly. So they're like, just like threat hunting, there could be some noise and you could run into where if you have really old software you're running on your networks, maybe code signing was not the thing on that 15 year old software you're running. But um, that's kind of a good approach where you can start either excluding certain things that you already know or seeing how viable that is and kind of walk that process, which I'll probably do myself now that I've kind of talked through it all, right? Um, but that's what was really cool about finding things like this that are trying to threat hunt and kind of learning from their approaches, their hypothesis, adding what knowledge you already have to something to kind of bolster your own hypothesis or, you know, take that. And that's kind of um, what people say, what are good traits? Like, how do you know you've got good threat hunters? It's people that can kind of understand things and also have internal knowledge themselves that they can then apply to those things. Um, and that makes a very effective threat hunter. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's why I, th I thought was great about this is it really, it, it was great food for thought, gave me some new ideas. They had a really interesting and good approach as well. Um, and it was really you know, short, sweet, and very explainable. So it's really, really good piece of work. I hope they continue that series and keep uh, pushing it out. Absolutely. All right. So I think that takes me to the last thing. Um, and this one was just an interesting read. So it was from the register and it was a blog that was basically called um, add writing malware to the list of things generative AI is not very good at doing. Um, and basically it was an analysis done by, I think Google and trend micro about the, and I think Mandy had chimed in, but I think Mandy, it's part of Google, right? So, but their analysis on how well does things like chat GPT, uh, assist in writing malware and from their, uh, assessments, they feel like they do not, it does not do a very good job. And so I thought this was interesting um, for two reasons. One, I have definitely used ChatGPT to help me emulate certain behaviors I'm trying to execute. Uh, or taking how adversaries have used certain commands and they don't work for me and ChatGPT can help me get them working. Uh, but the one thing I always forget to add in there is my, my, I say institutional knowledge, but my knowledge in this field in general and how that conversation back and forth can get me through my own hurdles because I already know some things versus, you know, people always, the speculation is like, well, now anyone can write malware. 
And I, I sometimes forget that like, yes, it makes sense to me what Chad GPT says to get me on the right track because I already know something. Um, and that's kind of heard from some malware authors and people that kind of delve in reverse engineering of their same feelings. Like if I had no knowledge at all, this wouldn't really be that helpful. And I wouldn't be able to get past why things aren't working, even if I had a starting point. Um, so I kind of agree with them there and it's good. I mean, there are reputable sources that say, yeah, from just off the rip, it's not, it's not as threatening as some people try to make it sound like, Oh, now look what we've done. We, you know, everybody can now do bad things. It's like, uh, not, it's not the case, but something that I thought was very interesting. And, um, and I think Google was the one that really, uh, spent some time on this was, you know, they write fuzzers and, um, what a fuzzer is for the people who don't know is it's it's a way to just generate data for uh, testing your software or whatever is code that you wrote uh, to to create inputs to possibly break your code and then identify bugs and vulnerabilities in it by doing so. Um, and it's just called fuzzing because it's sometimes it's kind of randomly generated, sometimes it's got some targeted approach based on what it is you're trying to test. But it's it's kind of like brute forcing if you think about like how you break passwords, but for finding vulnerabilities in code, it's called fuzzing. Well, apparently by using these um, language models, uh, and it can actually make fuzzing better um, and more achievable for discovering these vulnerabilities. So that being said, it might not be really great at necessarily finding or writing malware but it might be really good at helping you identify vulnerabilities that someone can then take advantage of. Um, so, uh, you know, that being said, something to kind of be aware of that, you know, maybe, you know, that might put a, a bigger or significant importance on patching. Unfortunately, obviously, if adversaries are finding vulnerabilities before industry, um, they'll be exploited and then they get patched later. So there's always going to be victims. Um, but that was kind of an interesting kind of pivot, I thought, as far as, hey, Yes, um, ChatGPT can be really powerful, but not in ways where people initially kind of, you know, jumped off the ledge and went screaming that, you know, malware is now going to be an everywhere thing. I feel like it's, if people really indoctrinate it, um, like Google has found it to be very good at, I think vulnerability discovery could go up. And, it, and especially, you know, if you're a bug bounty person and you make money off finding vulnerabilities, geez, it seems like a great opportunity to uh, escalate your capabilities to then find more bugs and that kind of make a career out of it. Cause some of these bug bounties pay a lot of money. Um, so, you know, insightful for that reason as well. So yeah. What were your thoughts? So I found it very interesting. One thing that I definitely came to my mind was the, I forget which article it was. And I think I mentioned in the past though, where, uh, a, an adversary gained access to an environment and then they, um, use chat GPT as their um, like polymorphic malware where they would have yeah. the, the payload reach out, right? And then it asked it to do something, you know, create it. But my question, I guess my real question is that if they are all, or if, if people are asking it to create the same malware or at least calm questions that are close together, Will the, all the malware or whatever they're trying to write start looking similar? And if that is the case, because it is being trained, because it is learning and it's getting better, what you know, what some people are expected, is if it does create one very, um, not maybe not so sophisticated, but one way to do 
or to compromise a machine, wouldn't that be kind of good for us? Because then when we know what behaviors it's exhibiting, we know which, you know, what, almost what to expect, if, if that makes sense. You bring up an interesting point, but I feel like it's like two separate things that I think ChatGPT is good at. So this article speaks like writing things from scratch, it's struggles. If you're like, I know nothing, make this for me. But when you mention the polymorphic malware stuff, you know, it is something said differently where if you have something that already works and you're like, change this, it's very good at using the information you provide and not messing it up, but making modifications that you, you can basically spell out or it can figure out and it can work with something that already works. So like, for instance, if I were to give it code and I'm saying, Hey, this is really poorly written code. Can you find ways to optimize it? It can spit out something that's still likely runs at a high confidence. Right. Um, so, but I given it something already that it knows is validated versus it coming up with something from the scratch. So I think that's two different scenarios, but a very interesting separation of those two scenarios. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's a very valid point. Um, and then sometimes some of these malware authors or people trying to use, I, I feel like people sometimes forget what it is they're providing when they're prompting for these language models to work um, because that creates insight into the output, but also their own knowledge that they already have to interpret the results. Because um, there's like kind of biases in there that benefit it working essentially than saying, uh, you know, like I know nothing, I need answers to something. So, yeah. So you have any additional thoughts there or should we close no, this no, out? I was, I was pretty much caught on that one. <laughs> cool. Well, um, just really one short announcement just to let people know that, uh, you know, us as Cyborg will be attending the SANS 2023 Threat Hunting in the Cloud Forum. Um, that'll be August 25th. So, you know, feel free to, you know, have Slack running uh, conversations going there and we'll hopefully be representing any answers we can or conversations that we can associated with that. So this should be a good time. And Sands always really puts on some good stuff. I'm a big supporter of them. Um, so with that, I want to thank everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast. I really look forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of August 21st, 2023. Happy hunting everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.